Chapter 13 of He Fell in Love with His Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. He Fell in Love with His Wife by Edward P. Rowe. Chapter 13. Not Wife, but Waif. Tom Waterley's horse was the pride of his heart. It was a bobtailed, raw-boned animal, but as Tom complacently remarked to Alida, he can pass about anything on the road, a boast that he let no chance escape of verifying. It was a terrible ordeal to the poor woman to go dashing through the streets in an open wagon, feeling that every eye was upon her. With head bowed down, she employed her failing strength in holding herself from falling out, yet almost wishing that she might be dashed against some object that would end her wretched life. It finally occurred to Tom that the woman at his side might not, after her recent experience, share in his enthusiasm, and he pulled up, remarking, with a rough effort at sympathy, "'It's a cussed shame you've been treated so, and as soon as you're ready, I'll help you get even with the scamp.' "'I'm not well, sir,' said Alida humbly. "'I only ask for a quiet place where I can rest till strong enough to do some kind of work.' "'Well, well,' said Tom kindly, "'don't lose heart. We'll do the best by you we can. That ain't saying very much, though, for we're full and running over.' He soon drew rein at the poorhouse door and sprang out. "'I... I feel strange,' Alida gasped. Tom caught the fainting woman in his arms and shouted, "'Here! Bill! Joe! You lazy loons! Where are you?' Three or four half-wrecks of men shuffled to his assistance, and together they bore the unconscious woman to the room which was used as a sort of hospital. Some old crones gathered around with such restoratives as they had at command. Gradually the stricken woman revived, but as the whole miserable truth came back, she turned her face to the wall with a sinking of heart akin to despair. At last, from sheer exhaustion, feverish sleep ensued, from which she often started with moans and low cries. One impression haunted her. She was falling, ever falling, into a dark bottomless abyss. Hours passed in the same partial stupor, filled with phantoms and horrible dreams, Toward evening she aroused herself mechanically to take the broth Mrs. Waterley ordered her to swallow, then relapsed into the same lethargy. Late in the night she became conscious that someone was kneeling at her bedside and fondling her. She started up with a slight cry. "'Don't be afraid. It's only me, dear,' said a quavering voice. In the dim rays of a night-lamp, Alida saw an old woman with gray hair falling about her face and on her night-robe. At first, in her confused, feverish impressions, the poor waif was dumb with superstitious awe and trembled between joy and fear. Could her mother have come to comfort her in her sore extremity? "'Put your head on me, our old withered breast,' said the apparition, "'and ye'll know a mither's heart never changes. I've been a-looking for ye and expecting ye these long, weary years. They said ye wouldn't come back, that I'd never find ye again.' but I knowed I would, and here ye are in me arms, me darlint. Don't draw away from your old mither. Don't ye be afeard or shamed, loike. No matter what ye've done or where ye've been or who ye've been with, a mither's heart welcomes ye back just the same as when yous was a baby and slept on me breast. A mither's heart would quench the fires o' hell. I'd go into the burning flames of the pit and bear ye out in me arms, so never fear. Now that I found ye, ye're safe." "'You'll not run away from me again. I'll hold ye. I'll hold ye back.' 
and the poor creature clasped Alida with such conclusive energy that she screamed from pain and terror. "'Ye shall not get away from me. Ye shall not go back to evil ways. Whist, whist, be easy, and let me plead with ye. Think how many long, weary years I've looked for ye and waited for ye. Never have I slept night or day in me watchin'. Ye may be so stained and lost and ruined that the whole world will scorn ye. Yet not your mither, not your old mither. Oh, Nora, Nora, why did ye rin away from me? Wasn't I coined? No, no, ye cannot lave me again. And she threw herself on Alida, whose disordered mind was tortured by what she heard. Whether or not it was a more terrible dream than had yet oppressed her she scarcely knew but in the excess of her nervous horror she sent out a cry that echoed in every part of the large building. Two old women rushed in and dragged Alida's persecutor, screaming away. "'That's all as the way o' it,' she shrieked. "'As soon as I find me Nora, they snatches me and carries me off, and I have to begin me watchin' and waitin' and lookin' again.' Alida continued sobbing and trembling violently. One of the awakened patients sought to assure her by saying, don't mind it so, miss. It's only crazy Kate. Her daughter ran away from her years and years ago, how many no one knows. And when a young woman's brought here, she thinks it's her lost Nora. They oughtn't to let her get out, knowing you was here. For several days Alida's reason wavered. The nervous shock of her sad experiences had been so great that it did not seem at all improbable that she, like the insane mother, might be haunted for the rest of her life by an overwhelming impression of something lost. In her morbid, shaken mind, she confounded the wrong she had received with guilt on her own part. Eventually she grew calmer and more sensible. Although her conscience acquitted her of intentional evil, nothing could remove the deep-rooted conviction that she was shamed beyond hope of remedy. For a time she was unable to rally from nervous prostration. Meanwhile, her mind was preternaturally active, presenting every detail of the past until she was often ready to cry aloud in her despair. Tom Waterley took an unusual interest in her case, and exhorted the visiting physician to do his best for her. She finally began to improve, and with the first return of strength sought to do something with her feeble hands. The bread of charity was not sweet. Although the place in which she lodged was clean, and the coarse, unvarying fare abundant, she shrank shuddering with each day's clearer consciousness from the majority of those about her. Phases of life of which she had scarcely dreamed were the common topics of conversation. In her mother she had learned to venerate gray hairs, and it was an awful shock to learn that so many of the feeble creatures about her were coarse, wicked, and evil-disposed. How could their withered lips frame the words they spoke? How could they dwell on subjects that were profanation, even to such wrecks of womanhood as themselves? Moreover, they persecuted her by their curiosity. The good material in her apparel had been examined and commented on. Her wedding ring had been seen and its absence soon noted, for Alida, after gaining the power to recall the past fully, had thrown away the metal lie, feeling that it was the last link in a chain binding her to a loathed and hated relationship. Learning from their questions that the inmates of the almshouse did not know her history, she refused to reveal it, thus awakening endless surmises. Many histories were made for her, the Beldams vying with each other in constructing the worst one. Poor Alida soon learned that there was public opinion even in an almshouse, and that she was under its ban. In dreary despondency, she thought, they found out about me. 
If such creatures as these think I'm hardly fit to speak to, how can I ever find work among good, respectable people? Her extreme depression, the coarse, vulgar, and uncharitable natures by which she was surrounded, retarded her recovery. By her efforts to do anything in her power for others, she disarmed the hostility of some of the women, and those that were more or less demented became fond of her, but the majority probed her wound by every look and word. She was a saint compared with any of these, yet they made her envy their respectability. She often thought, Would to God that I was as old and ready to die as the feeblest woman here, if I could only hold up my head like her. One day, a woman who had a child left it sleeping in its rude wooden cradle and went downstairs. The babe wakened and began to cry. Alida took it up and found a strange solace in rocking it to sleep again upon her breast. At last the mother returned, glared a moment into Alida's appealing eyes, then snatched the child away with the cruel words, "'Don't you be touched, my baby, again, to think it had been in the arms of the loiks o' ye.' Alida went away and sobbed until her strength was gone. She found that there were some others ostracized like herself, but they accepted their position as a matter of course, as if it belonged to them and was the least of their troubles. Her strength was returning, yet she was still feeble when she sent for Mrs. Waterley and asked, "'Do you think I'm strong enough to take a place somewhere?' "'You ought to know that better than me,' was the chilly reply. "'Do you—do you think I could get a place? I would be willing to do any kind of honest work not beyond my strength. You hardly look able to sit up straight. Better wait till you're stronger. I'll tell my husband. If applications come, he'll see about it.' And she turned coldly away. A day or two later Tom came and said brusquely, but not unkindly, "'Don't like my hotel, eh? What can you do?' "'I'm used to sewing, but I'd try to do almost anything by which I could earn my living. Best thing to do is to prosecute that scamp and make him pay you a good round sum.' She shook her head decidedly. "'I don't wish to see him again. I don't wish to go before people and have the, the past talked about. I'd like a place with some kind, quiet people who keep no other help.' Perhaps they wouldn't take me if they knew, but I would be so faithful to them, and try so hard to learn what they wanted. That's all nonsense. They're not taking you. I'll find you a place some day, but you're not strong enough yet. You'd be brought right back here. You're as pale as a ghost, almost look like one. So don't be impatient, but give me a chance to find you a good place. I feel sorry for you, and don't want you to get among folks that have no feelings. Don't you worry now. Chirk up, and you'll come out all right. I, I think that if, if I'm employed, the people who take me ought to know, said Alida with bowed head. They'll be blamed fools if they don't think more of you when they do know, was his response. Still, that shall be as you please. I've told only my wife, and they've kept mum at the police station, so the thing hasn't gotten into the papers. Alida's head bowed lower still as she replied, I thank you. My only wish now is to find some quiet place in which I can work and be left to myself. Very well, said Tom good-naturedly. Cheer up. I'll be on the lookout for you. She turned to the window near which she was sitting to hide the tears which his rough kindness evoked. He don't seem to shrink from me as if I wasn't fit to be spoken to, she thought. But his wife did. I'm afraid people won't take me when they know. The April sunshine poured in at the window. The grass was becoming green. A robin alighted on a tree nearby and poured out a jubilant song. For a few moments hope, that had been almost dead in her heart, revived. 
as she looked gratefully at the bird, thanking it in her heart for the song, it darted upon a string hanging on an adjacent spray, and bore it to a crotch between two boughs. Then Alida saw it was building a nest. Her woman's heart gave way. Oh, she moaned, I shall never have a home again, no place shared by one who cares for me. To work, and to be tolerated for the sake of my work, is all that's left. End of chapter 13